Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm excited to be joined by two guests on today's episode. First, we have Christina Cho. Christina is currently a third-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Hi, Christina. How are you? Great. I'm really excited to be here. Very good. Next, we have Dr. Julissa Patel. Dr. Patel is an associate professor of pediatrics and practicing pediatric rheumatologist here at MCG. Hi, Dr. Patel, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. Great. To get things started, Dr. Patel, will you introduce our topic for today and tell us why this is so important for our pediatricians? Sure, Zach. Juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JIA, used to be referred to as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. The name changed because JIA is different than the rheumatoid arthritis that is seen in adults. JIA is an important topic for our pediatricians because they may encounter, at some point, patients presenting with joint complaints in their practice. It is important to be able to differentiate between the different causes of joint pain in children as they have different treatment plans. There is also a shortage of pediatric rheumatologists, with only about 300 in the United States. Pediatricians are often having to manage and follow patients with rheumatologic disorders with the guidance of pediatric rheumatologists. JIA affects about 1 in 1,000 children and is associated with decreased quality of life and risk of permanent joint damage. Therefore, it is important to promptly diagnose these patients and to initiate treatment in order to prevent joint damage and improve outcomes. Thanks so much. I think because JIA is somewhat uncommon but is associated with a high morbidity if the diagnosis is missed makes this a great topic for today. Now that we have some background information, Christina, do you want to present the case for today? Yeah, absolutely. So our patient is a four-year-old female who presents to the clinic with limping and right knee swelling, which has persisted for the past six weeks. The mother noticed the patient limping at home in the context of no known recent trauma. After about one week of symptoms, the mother decided to take the patient to the pediatrician. At that visit, the patient was found to have mild effusion of her right knee. Initial labs came back with a normal CBC and differential, but a mildly elevated CRP. Imaging was also conducted at the visit, and the radiograph revealed no notable findings other than that mild effusion in the right knee. So our patient's symptoms initially improved with acetaminophen ibuprofen, but she continued to display intermittent limping when waking up in the morning and after naps, so she was referred to a pediatric rheumatologist. So Dr. Hodges, as a pediatrician, what are your first impressions of this case, and how would you start your evaluation? Thanks, Christina. This is an interesting case and might be concerning for a possible rheumatologic cause. But as a pediatrician, first, I'd want to clarify exactly when the caregiver first noticed the swelling. Are they sure there was not any trauma? Perhaps the child hurt her knee at daycare or pre-K. Next, I'd want to screen for common conditions that might have the most worrisome outcomes if missed. Mostly, I'm talking about infectious causes like septic arthritis or osteomyelitis and even malignancies. Infectious signs include fever, erythema overlying the joint, and drainage. Is there a history of skin, soft tissue, or MRSA infections? All this would be important. Next, you can screen for malignancy by asking about weight loss, lymphadenopathy, easy bruising, or gingival bleeding. But since this child's knee pain and swelling has lasted six weeks, many of the acute causes of pain, like trauma and infection, become less likely, and we should consider rheumatologic causes. You know, at this point, I'll defer to Dr. Patel to tell us how a pediatric rheumatologist might approach this case. Sure, Zach. A good history taking is very important here and is key to making the diagnosis. First, it's important to differentiate between arthralgia and arthritis. Arthralgia refers to joint pain, while arthritis refers to inflammation of the synovial membrane that lines the joint. 
we also have to remember that there may be referred pain from the joint above or below the site that is being evaluated. An example of this is hip pathology that may present as knee pain. It's also important to ask about joint stiffness or achiness in the morning or after prolonged periods of inactivity. There can also be limping or grumpiness, especially after the child has taken a nap. In JIA, often the joint pain and stiffness improves as the day progresses. A migratory pattern where one joint is subsiding as another joint becomes inflamed is seen in rheumatic fever, post-strep reactive arthritis, and gonococcal arthritis. On the other hand, an additive pattern is most characteristic of JIA. So I think this is an important point. What do you mean by an additive pattern? Sure. An additive pattern of joint involvement is when you have subsequent joint involvement and the previously inflamed joints remain inflamed. Also, localization of the pain may be difficult in young children and toddlers. Important clues in this case would include the inability to weight bear and regression of skills, such as a child who now wants to be carried or who wants to crawl to avoid weight bearing. Some patients may also not present with any pain, only with joint swelling. Other key questions include asking about the duration of the joint swelling or decreased range of motion, such as the inability to extend an elbow or a knee. So Dr. Patel, you brought up a lot of really important facts, and I just want to take a moment to review. So you started by telling us that it's really important for us to differentiate between arthralgia, which is joint pain, and arthritis, which is joint inflammation. You also brought up the great point that younger children aren't exactly able to communicate with us when it comes to where it hurts. So we need to be careful in terms of evaluating any regression of previously learned skills like walking or limping or even decreased use of a limb. Lastly, you brought up the point that it's important to keep up a broad differential, including trauma, infection, oncologic causes, as well as other rheumatologic causes. So before we go much further, Dr. Hodges, could you tell us exactly what JIA is? Yeah, good question, Christine. It's always good to know your definitions. So JIA is defined as chronic arthritis, meaning pain and inflammation greater than or equal to six weeks in duration in children or adolescents under the age of 16 years. As the name suggests, it's an autoimmune or an autoinflammatory condition without any known specific cause. There are several different categories that are based on the number of joints involved, extra articular or extra joint symptoms, and lab testing. Sometimes the child may start off with one JIA subtype, but later develop symptoms of another JIA subtype. We're not sure why some children develop arthritis and others don't. It is possible that some children have certain genes yet to be identified that may predispose them to develop arthritis when exposed to external factors, such as an infectious agent. There is no evidence that foods or allergies cause JIA. Christina, tell us a little bit more about your patient's exam. Sure thing. So our patient is a well-developed four-year-old in no acute distress. She's afebrile and vital signs are normal for her age. Overall, she's well-appearing but has obvious swelling of her right knee. There is some redness and range of motion is limited due to pain. However, no other joints are affected and the rest of her exam is unremarkable. Dr. Hodges, what comes to mind when you first hear about her exam? You know, when I approach examining a patient, I think it's always important to start with the vital signs and the general appearance. You know, for example, fever and tachycardia, if that's present, it's relatively nonspecific, but would definitely make me reconsider infectious causes, in addition to the rest of the differential that we've already mentioned. Next, children with chronic inflammatory diseases might have issues with growth, so I'd be careful to chart her height and weight and compare it to normal values for age. This child needs a very careful head-to-toe exam. I'd pay close attention for any rashes, lymphadenopathy. These might suggest a systemic pathology rather than one that's localized to one joint. 
As you move on to examining each of the joints, it's a good idea to start with the unaffected areas first and then carefully move towards the affected joints. It's likely that after you manipulate that inflamed red hot knee, a young child's not going to comply with the rest of your exam. That's a really great point. So focusing on our patient's joint findings, Dr. Patel, what would your general approach to the rheumatologic exam be? Sure, Christina. I would begin by carefully observing how the child positions and uses her extremities. For example, how she walks, runs in the hallway, or gets on and off the exam table, and also look for leg length discrepancies. Next, I'd inspect each joint looking for arthritis. Again, that's any swelling, decreased range of motion, tenderness or warmth, bony outgrowth, or muscle atrophy around the surrounding area. And this situs is inflammation in the area where tendons and ligaments insert into the bone. This is typically seen in the Achilles tendon, around the knee, greater trochanter, metatarsal heads, and plantar fascia insertion of the feet. I would also look for micro or retrognathia that can be a sign of TMJ arthritis. This can typically be evaluated by assessing inter-incisor mouth opening, which normally is about four centimeters, and also assessing for jaw deviation when the patient opens their mouth. I'd also carefully inspect the skin and eyes, psoriasis, nail pits, onycholysis, or detachment of the nail from the nail bed, all point towards possible diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. Uveitis, or inflammation of the eyes, which may present with synechiae, or abnormal pupillary shape, can also be diagnosed with a slit lamp exam and is associated with JIA. An important point to remember is that the uveitis may sometimes be asymptomatic. So Dr. Patel, you brought up a lot of great points. I just want to recap. The rheumatologic exam really starts when the child is walking into the exam room. Look for those subtle abnormalities, whether it's in terms of gait or any discrepancies in the leg length. You also brought up the great point that we should do a careful head-to-toe joint exam. Also, you mentioned it's important to consider non-articular manifestations of rheumatologic disease. So we have to do a careful skin, fingernail, and eye exam in addition to the typical physical exam. So now that we know a little bit about the general approach, for our patient with the six weeks of limping and isolated arthritis of one knee, what would be the next step, Dr. Hodges? So another good question, Christine, and I'm obviously going to rely on Dr. Patel for some of the specifics here. But first, we need to emphasize that JIA is a clinical diagnosis. Labs are unable to reliably distinguish JIA from other inflammatory conditions. Our initial laboratory evaluation typically includes many nonspecific tests screening for evidence of inflammation. These include a complete blood count with differential, complete metabolic panel, including electrolytes, kidney and liver function, a C-reactive protein, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate. We also need to exclude other causes of arthritis. This will be guided by your history and physical exam. For instance, if there was concern for possible septic arthritis, then synovial fluid should be sampled. If there is greater than 50,000 white cells with mostly neutrophils, a bacterial infection of that joint is most likely. In some cases, specialized testing for Lyme and tuberculosis may be needed if the history and physical point to those diagnoses. And finally, screening for malignancy may be needed, especially if you get a history of bone pain that wakes the child up from sleep or weight loss. Other concerning signs for a possible malignancy include cytopenias, that being a low white blood cell count, anemia, thrombocytopenia, or if there are elevated markers of cell turnover like lactate dehydrogenase and uric acid. We need to keep in mind that leukemia, lymphoma, neuroblastoma, and even Ewing sarcoma may all mimic JIA. These are all very good points. It's important to realize that juvenile idiopathic arthritis is a diagnosis of exclusion. A normal ESR or CRP do not rule out JIA because they may not be elevated in localized disease like oligoarticular JIA. 
So I think it's really worth taking a moment to emphasize again that JIA is truly a clinical diagnosis, meaning that the diagnosis based primarily on the history and physical exam. And both of you all made great points that certain labs, however, such as the CBC or synovial fluid analysis could be helpful though for screening for other causes. And also, Dr. Patel, you mentioned that a normal CRP or ESR does not rule out JIA. I think that's very interesting. So neither of you all mentioned ANA, rheumatoid factor, or HLA typing. How helpful would these more specialized labs be for making the diagnosis? Sure. Antinuclear antibodies, or ANAs, are not all that helpful for diagnosis because about 50% of children with JIA will be ANA negative. ANA may also be positive with low titers, approximately 1 to 160, in healthy patients without any rheumatologic disease. ANA testing is therefore used to stratify the risk of complications like uveitis. Patients who have a positive ANA and JIA need more frequent screening by ophthalmology because they are at higher risk. Thinking about other tests, rheumatoid factor may be positive in only about 10% of children with JIA. Also, HLA-B27 only has limited sensitivity and specificity for enthesitis-related arthritis, a subtype of JIA. That's really interesting. So again, what you all are saying is that testing for things like ANA and other specialized tests don't really make the diagnosis of GAA. It really comes back to a careful history and exam. But it does sound like these labs could be helpful for monitoring the disease severity or risk stratifying who might be at risk for complications like uveitis. Is there anything else that goes into the initial evaluation of a patient with potential GIA? Yeah, good question, Christina. Much of it is the history exam and a few laboratory tests. You could consider getting imaging of the joint in question. Findings are typically nonspecific, but it can be helpful to rule out structural causes. Radiographs might demonstrate joint space narrowing due to cartilage destruction or even erosions. You could consider getting ultrasound. That might show a joint diffusion, but you still got to figure out why the child is having this joint inflammation. And I'd just like to make one further comment regarding imaging. An MRI may show earlier joint involvement before radiographs can pick up the joint space narrowing or erosions. Great. So catching us back up on the case, our patient had basic loss repeated, and they showed a normal CBC, but a mildly elevated CRP and ESR, which suggested increased systemic inflammation. She also had the radiograph of the right hip and knee, which were only notable for a right knee effusion. So Dr. Hodges, focusing on our topic for today, if this patient doesn't have any alternative explanation for arthritis, how would you finally make that diagnosis of JIA? So when making the diagnosis, something that might be confusing is that JIA is actually a group of disorders that is further divided up into seven different categories. The different types are based on the number of joints involved, the extra articular or extra joint features, and the serology identified during the first six months of disease presentation. Let's start off by talking about oligoarticular JIA, which is the most common subtype and is the most likely diagnosis in your patient. Remember the prefix oligo means few. Children with JIA involving four or fewer joints during the first six months of disease are diagnosed with oligoarticular JIA. These are most commonly well-appearing two- to four-year-old girls with morning limp and swelling of one of the lower extremity joints, most commonly a knee. Initial labs, including complete blood cell count, sed rate, and CRP, are typically normal. Almost 70% are ANA positive and require the close ophthalmology follow-up due to the risk of uveitis. Got it. So to recap one more time, oligoarticular JIA is four or less joints involved in the first six months. 
Typically, young children two to four years old present with isolated knee swelling, and it's important that we screen for ANA positivity because those children are at higher risk for developing uveitis. Now, after making the diagnosis, what would be the treatment? So we definitely rely on our pediatric rheumatologist to help guide treatment, but there are a few key steps and general principles we can keep in mind. First, we want to slow down or stop inflammation that leads to pain and subsequent joint damage that can result in long-term morbidity. Next, we want to relieve symptoms, control pain, and improve quality of life. And lastly, because JIA can sometimes be a lifelong disease, we want to reduce long-term health effects by achieving early remission. The general approach is rapid and aggressive therapy to reduce inflammation, followed by a gradual taper once in remission. We want to stop ongoing destruction of the joint and achieve early remission while carefully balancing adverse effects of medications. Those are important goals, Zach. The first-line therapy of oligoarticular JIA is NSAIDs, most often ibuprofen or naproxen. Naproxen may be easier to administer as it is given only twice a day. It is important to caution parents to have the child take NSAIDs with food in order to prevent GI upset. Parents should also be reminded of the risk of naproxen-induced pseudoporphyria. Well, what do you mean by pseudoporphyria? Sure. Pseudoporphyria is a rare photodermatitis that presents with skin fragility and vesicle formation. Sure. So we'll be sure to keep that in mind if we have any weird skin reactions after we start a child on ibuprofen or naproxen. Good point. If there are only a few joints, say one to two, involved, then we might also consider offering intraarticular corticosteroid injections. The benefits of intraarticular steroids include bypassing the need to take daily systemic medications. Risks of injections include infection, skin atrophy at the injection site, and rarely systemic absorption of the steroids. So what I'm hearing is that we need to quickly control arthritis to prevent prolonged symptoms. And NSAIDs like naproxen is a good first-line agent, and steroid injections might be appropriate for our patients with only one or two joints affected. So to switch things up a little bit, what if our case was a little bit different and our patient had more than four joints involved? Would this change our management? Yeah, it would. So you're probably describing a case of polyarticular JIA, Remember, this is when there is arthritis in five or more joints during the first six months of disease. This group is further subdivided depending on if rheumatoid factor is positive or negative. Keep in mind that those with a positive rheumatoid factor tend to have a worse prognosis. Polyarticular JIA commonly presents in young children one to three years of age, but also during adolescence. In addition to NSAIDs, we usually start these patients early on methotrexate, a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, or DMARD, and a short course of systemic corticosteroids. We typically dose methotrexate once weekly, either orally or subcutaneously. It may take up to three months to take full effect, so many patients need a corticosteroid bridge to induce remission. It's also important to monitor these patients for medication side effects. For methotrexate, these side effects include nausea and vomiting, oral ulcers, fatigue, decreased appetite, and elevated liver enzymes, which may be transient. It is important to counsel our patients on refraining from alcohol use to prevent hepatitis. Methotrexate is also teratogenic, so contraception is necessary in our sexually active female adolescent patients. Some patients may need a biologic agent, such as a TNF blocker, if joint inflammation continues. Evidence has shown that early aggressive initial therapy improves outcomes in patients with polyarticular JIA. 
So we will follow them closely in our clinic for routine labs to ensure that they are achieving remission. We also advise patients to avoid live virus vaccines while on these medications, and if possible, updating non-immune patients on their vaccines prior to immunosuppression for GIA. So to hit some of the high-yield points, a diagnosis of polyarticular GIA requires involvement of five or more joints during the first six months. These patients tend to have a more aggressive disease and therefore require additional therapy, including systemic corticosteroids, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, and even biologic agents. And of course, with these additional medications, there may be more side effects to consider. You also brought up a great point that these patients shouldn't receive the live virus vaccines like MMR, varicella, or the live influenza vaccine. You also mentioned that achieving early remission is really important for these patients. What would happen, though, if there was ongoing joint inflammation? Great question, Christina. These children can suffer a number of long-term complications from JIA. Most fundamentally, they can have destruction of joints, including cartilage loss and bone erosions with osteopenia. But they can also have epiphyseal overgrowth or premature fusion of growth plates, causing limb length discrepancies. As the disease progresses, joints may become more unstable and even fuse, causing significant functional impairment and reduced quality of life. And in addition to everything that Dr. Patel said, thinking outside of the bone and joints, these children can develop growth failure, blindness due to uncontrolled uveitis, and significant disability, and even mental health concerns. These children need appropriate multidisciplinary care to prevent long-term impairment, and active joint disease should not be tolerated. Are there any additional subtypes of JIA that we should be aware of? Yeah, unfortunately, this is quite a complex topic and is much more than we can cover in one podcast episode, but it might be helpful to be aware of enthesitis-related arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and even systemic onset JIA. You know, very briefly, enthesitis-related arthritis is basically arthritis or enthesitis associated with sacroiliac joint tenderness or inflammatory lumbosacral pain. The typical patient is a male older than six years old who is also HLA-B27 positive. There's commonly a history of uveitis or a family history of autoimmune disease, especially inflammatory bowel disease. On the other hand, psoriatic arthritis can be diagnosed in patients with arthritis and accompanying psoriasis. These patients commonly have hand findings, including dactylitis, resulting in swollen or sausage-like digits and nail pitting. One point to make with psoriatic arthritis is that in some patients, the psoriatic lesions may not be present at arthritis onset, but usually occurs within two years. These patients are often classified as oligoarticular or polyarticular JIA until the skin lesions appear and then are reclassified as psoriatic arthritis. The presence of dactylitis and a family history of psoriasis serve as important clues. That's really interesting, Dr. Patel, because what you're saying is that a patient could have one subtype of JIA, like oligoarticular JIA, but then be reclassified as those symptoms arise. I think it's also a really good example of how we need to do a careful history and exam for each of these patients. Dr. Hodges, you mentioned systemic JIA earlier. What do we need to know about that? Yeah, we can introduce some of the basics here. So systemic onset JIA is the most severe form of JIA. These children can have arthritis and fever up to 40 degrees Celsius for more than 14 days. Their fever is said to be quotidian, meaning it happens at the same general time each day. Classically, these children can have a very characteristic evanescent erythematous rash, that being a transient salmon pink macular rash, especially when they're febrile. There also may be systemic signs, including generalized lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, and serositis, meaning pericarditis, pleuritis, and peritonitis. 
These patients need a very thorough history, exam, and laboratory evaluation. This may be confused for sepsis, toxic shock, or even a malignancy. Many children will have a bone marrow evaluation to exclude leukemia. What's most concerning is that these patients may present with macrophage activation syndrome, which may be fatal. So what I'm hearing is that systemic onset GI can be much more severe. The patients can have prolonged fever, rash, and multiple organ systems involved. They can even be critically ill at the time of presentation to care. But what exactly do you mean, Dr. Patel, by macrophage activation syndrome? Macrophage activation syndrome, or MAS, is a systemic hyperinflammatory syndrome that is also called secondary hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. It's due to rapid expansion of macrophages and T-cells with cytokine overproduction. These children can have a high fever, elevated liver enzymes, and extremely high ferritins, often above 5,000 nanograms per milliliter. They can also develop multi-organ failure and DIC with abnormalities in D-dimer, coagulation studies, platelets, and fibrinogen. The treatment of MAS is well beyond the scope of today's talk, but commonly requires multidisciplinary care in the ICU, and some studies have reported up to an 8% mortality rate. Got it. So I can also see how this might be confused with Kawasaki disease or even multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. It sounds like macrophage activation syndrome could even be its own episode for the podcast. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, at this point, we are getting a little short on time for today. We've covered quite a bit of information. Starting with our four-year-old patient who presented with limping and knee swelling, we worked through the initial evaluation, differential diagnosis, and many various subtypes of JIA and even touched on the basics of the initial management. Dr. Patel, do you want to finish today's episode with some take-home points for our listeners? Sure, Zach. The presence of active disease should not be tolerated, as this suggests ongoing joint destruction. If you are worried about a patient, get your referral pediatric rheumatologist on the phone early. These children also need comprehensive multidisciplinary care, including occupational and physical therapy, ophthalmology, and orthopedics, which may only be available at a referral center. Hey, that sounds great. Thanks so much, Christina and Dr. Patel, for joining me today. I had a great time. Yes, absolutely. It was great learning with you all. Thank you for inviting me today. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is available for today's episode. Please refer to our show notes for the link. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.